What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Tina Brown gets things done. Yeah, no, I mean, I am very driven and I'm not easy to work for. I'm very, very demanding. But I also have people that come back and come back. She's been a leader since her mid-20s, and she's built the teams that transformed Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. And she created The Daily Beast. This is Business Insider's Success, How I Did It. I'm Rich Filoni. Brown grew up in England and became a media mogul in New York. Editors and writers have always questioned her most ambitious plans, but her resume is marked by major successes. A huge exception, of course, is a short-lived media brand called Talk that she launched with, of all people, Harvey Weinstein. Today she runs the Women in the World Summit. It highlights the stories of people fighting for women's rights around the world. It's allowed her to inspire a new generation of leaders. I started by asking why she thinks her legacy is other people, and how that connects with the magazines I've got in my living room. There are only two magazines that I subscribe to in print, in their Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, and when I look at them, I could still see like your legacy in both of them. It's pretty you cool. You know, we laid down good bones, that's what can I say. Um, we yeah. really did. And. You know, I think a magazine's DNA, once you put that imprint in, it can be reproduced with succeeding generations. That's the goal, you know, that you leave behind a staff and a structure and people who can continue it. Otherwise, you haven't really been successful if it disappears after you go, right? So a lot of the people I had, most of them actually, uh, for a long time have stayed. In fact, the people that I had at Vanity Fair have only just departed. And uh, the New Yorker, they're all still there. And how do you define success? That. I think the way I define success is that we build something that has such an identity, such a powerful pedigree of talent, that it's going to survive long after you go. And the pedigree of hiring is something I think about a lot, which is that, you know, if you hire great people, they hire great people. It goes on as a kind of reproducing DNA of talent. And if you can keep that up, it's going to have a very long life. It's really when that gets shot out from under for various reasons, if it's a takeover or a, you know, some kind of financial debacle or whatever, that those bones get trampled. But if they don't, then you're going to be okay. I'd like to talk about your personal story as well and how we got to this point. What were you like as a kid growing up? You had some interesting parents. I did. Well, I was very rebellious as a, as a child, but not in the sense of being you know, a wild drug taker or something. I was just incredibly insubordinate and attitudinal. Weren't you kicked out of school And I was kicked out of, yeah, I was kicked out of three (laughs) boarding schools. But the wonderful thing about my parents was my father was a movie producer. My mother was, you know, a passionate stay-at-home mom with me. And they always just supported me. I mean, my father used to come to the school and say, 
it must be terrible for you to have failed with this exceptional child. <laughs> and I would pack up my trunk and off I would go from the boarding school. So, uh, yeah, I, I was lucky to have parents who, who were supportive in that way. They weren't indulgent. I mean, when I got home, they would give me help. But when I was at the school, they had my back. Why were you getting into trouble so often? I was always in revolt. You know, I was always questioning authority. But it didn't stop me getting into Oxford, which probably would now. I mean, to have a resume like that. But Oxford's all about, you know, can you think? And so it's about the oral exam as much as it is what your transcript looks like. So I would never had trouble having a point of view. I was very skeptical of authority. And I think that's what makes me a journalist. I don't just believe what I'm told. I have a very questioning intellect. And I think to be a successful editor, you need a questioning intellect because what makes you pursue a story is thinking there's more to this story than meets the eye. And that's really always been my guiding drive as, a, as an editor, which is like, this is only the tip of the iceberg with the story. What really happened? Do you think your parents helped foster the skepticism? I do, actually. My father was always pursuing stories for movies. My mother was just a very smart woman. I mean, she always questioned what she was told. And they raised me to do that, you know, and I'm, I'm proud of it. I feel you cannot be a good editor without being really curious. So I'm also extremely curious as a person. And I really very rarely start talking to somebody and without getting really interested in, in their story. And I get deep into it. I can talk for hours to somebody about their lives, you know, and I, and I start to sort of interrogate them about their lives and ask a thousand questions. And they end up telling it to me. So I was a very good reporter. I got a lot of very good stories. The first time you became an editor-in-chief was when you were just 25 yes. at Tatler. How, how did that happen? <laughs> well, I was, you know, I became uh, a journalist for the Oxford magazine, and I was writing for it, and I caught the eye of Fleet Street editors because the pieces they thought were good. And so I was invited to kind of start writing for mainstream Fleet Street publications and, and magazines. And at that time, Tatler was bought by a real estate guy who was sort of looking to expand you know, his profile. I mean, I guess he was the Jared Kushner of that moment. And he bought Tatler, which was this kind of old fading society magazine, which was like a sort of poor man's town and country at the time. But it had a great history. It was actually founded in the 18th century. So it had a sort of great pedigree, if you like, in, in England. And he couldn't find anyone to edit it. And then somebody said, why don't you just go young? You know, here's this young writer who keeps writing these sparky things. And he asked me for an interview. And I immediately decided I wanted to be an editor. I realized that it would be my own show. I wanted my own show. And I also had such a strong point of view about everything. I was frustrated with not being able to have outlets for those points of view about the world. And so I said, I'll do it. And I instantly took to it, actually, I think, because, you know, you have to be a person who gets it all together, you know, who persuades people to do things for you, who sees stories, who assigns stories, who sort of juggles all the, all the aspects of it. I'd watched my father do that all my life with his movie producing. And I, think, I do think producing and editing are very similar. So I took very quickly to editing and sort of hired all my friends, which is what editors do. And my <laughs> friends turn out to be a good group. Because then you take most of them, all but one, right? All the way to uh, New York. With yes, I brought with me a, a big batch from London. I brought with me three editors and a managing editor who stayed at Vanity Fair and who just left last week. <laughs> so they were uh, an amazing group from Tatler, actually. What was it like learning how to be a manager in terms of hiring people, scouting talent, developing talent? How did that work? What was the learning curve like? I usually hire on instinct and 
it's very important you have the right personalities on a team. For instance, I'm a kind of whirling dervish. Therefore, I do need with me a really calm, you know, managing editor, counterpoint person, whatever they're called, whether it's, you know, a business partner or whether it's a, a, uh, uh, an executive editor. I look for someone who I know isn't that but has other gifts, which I don't have. And I am actually respectful of people who have very different gifts to mine. You know, I don't want everyone to, quote, look like me. I want a team that balances out. That, I think, is the critical thing that we're, for instance, not seeing with Donald Trump. He doesn't know how to create a team. And a team is about not 20 people with alpha ego but a mix of people who bring different things to the table. One person is very judicious, you know, and thoughtful, and you turn to for this kind of advice. Another person is really organized, you know, an organization whiz. Another person is the flair person that, you know, is going to bring in that one idea that is just different. So you have to really consider what you're building here. And I've always been very good at that, actually, of the sort of chemistry of different teams. They've all been actually very successful in their own way, even on the things that haven't worked, like Talk Magazine, which I launched, which did not work, but the team I put together were amazing. I think I know how to find talent. Can you give an example of maybe a meeting that you had where you're considering someone for a position and beyond just even their writing talent, something that struck you that this is someone that I want on my team? Well, Dominic Dunn was a classic example of that. You know, I mean, Dominic Dunn, when I first met him, when I first arrived at Vanity Fair in 1984, I was invited out to somebody's house and I was sat next to this kind of fading film producer who you know, I'd never met before. And yet, you know, I loved his stories. He was incredibly entertaining and observant. And then he told me a very tragic thing as we really bonded over dinner, which is that his daughter had been murdered and he was on his way out to L.A. for the trial of her murderer. I was so attracted to his voice that I just said to him, you know, Dominic, have you ever thought about keeping a diary? Because I think you should keep a diary of the trial. And, you know, if it's really poignant as I think it will be and interesting you know we might consider publishing it at Vanity Fair he his eyes lit up because I think it gave him a kind of a lifeline he went off to the trial and then he wrote this absolutely amazing kind of epic piece which was called Justice which was about how this chef at Marmazon restaurant in LA had killed his daughter and then got a very very light sentence because he was a jury pleaser as Dominic called it I said, okay, this is so amazing. Let's just give you a writing contract. And uh, he was my first writing contract. And of course, he became a huge talent for Vanity Fair for years. You know, he did all the sort of major pieces that we often remember from there. The trial of Klaus von Bülow, the socialite who was accused of trying to murder his wife. He did the O.J. Simpson trial. Dominic became a big celebrity writer. So that was a very gratifying moment when I followed my instincts and found a really big talent. Your career in New York began at Vanity Fair. What was it about that opportunity that said, I need to come I mean, to me, it seemed it was a no-brainer, you know. I mean, it took me exactly 20 seconds. I was first asked to do it, and the second editor was failing, but... So it was a relaunch of an old... Yes, it was a relaunch of a great... Vanity Fair relaunched in 1983 after a hugely golden past in the 20s and 30s when it then closed. And so the whole thing was that Condé Nast wanted to reopen it with a flourish, remake it. It was going to be a magazine that completely sort of obliterated The New Yorker that became like the great flagship of Condé Nast. And they launched it in 1983, and it was a turkey. It was a disaster. (laughs) And that's when I was at Tatler. So they brought me to New York as a kind of, quote, consultant. But, you know, I was was just 29. My husband was in England. Uh, I said I would come as a consultant, and I was really attracted to it, but I was sort of fearful. I didn't know anybody in New York. But within a few months of being there as a consultant, I realized that I actually could do this job. 
and I should do this job. But I wasn't quite ready for it. And I went back to London and I thought, oh, you know, I've blown it. They're going to stay with the second editor, who was also a disaster. But after a few months, they had had enough. I had to just wait for them to realize that he was a disaster. And then they called me and said, would you come back? And at that point, I had no hesitation. And I just took it right away. And in fact, I arrived from England on January 1984 from a vacation in Barbados. And I arrived with a suitcase full of cheesecloth bikinis and sarong. (laughs) And I didn't go back home to London for three years. I went straight into that job. I stayed in a hotel. And my husband, who was so incredibly supportive, he went back to London and packed up the house. He got a job teaching in Duke and said, let's just do it. And I did. And at Vanity Fair, you were covering celebrities in the New York socialite scene, which included Donald Trump. But you ended up becoming a figure in that yourself. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Well, I think, you know, when you have success obviously you end up moving into the echelon in which you know you're sort of covering but uh, I was always there as a journalist you know I mean I I always saw the point of being somewhere to get stories I never felt confused about why I was somewhere actually and actually I'm pretty private and quiet and you know like I never go out at weekends or whatever the reason I used to go out in the 80s and I did I mean constantly was to get stories sometimes I look back on that period and I just have no idea how I did it you know I had a closet full of Christian Lacroix poof dresses and all that (laughs) stuff which I don't have anymore and the red nails and the whole thing and it was you know power suits and the whole hilarious 80s you know thing but it was enormous fun at the time my children were very young I mean it was a lot of juggling but you know it was just that moment when you just did it all at a warp speed when I look back at my Vanity Fair diaries which you know I made into my book One of the things that blows me away is just, when did I sleep? (laughs) Seems like never. Well, I thought you said it helped that you didn't drink alcohol. It did help because it got me to remember all those things I wrote down. Did you feel like you had to transform yourself from someone who was more private, introverted into someone else? Well, I was always a split personality. You know, I was always Mm. somebody who was kind of hell for leather in my career and I would hit the scene to get the stories and then I would sort of withdraw as I've always lived that life of uh, private and public, and it works for me. When you moved to The New Yorker to take that over, there were editors or writers who thought that you were going to ruin this magazine bringing in photos, for example. Like, this is just going to become a tabloid. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they were just underestimating you? Well, they didn't understand my own range, which I understand why they didn't understand that. I mean, here was the editor of Vanity Fair, who just put Demi Moore pregnant and naked on the cover, photographed by Annie Leibovitz, right? And now I was coming into the ivory tower. Surely I was going to trash the Citadel. That was their fear. But of course, I knew that actually my real roots were literary, you know, that the first magazines I wrote for were not in any way Fleet Street tabloids. They were magazines that were the equivalent of the New Republic here, you know. The New Statesman was the place I wrote. So I knew that I had the literary depth to do it, The question was, could I renovate this magazine and save it from its sort of decaying audience uh, at enough speed that Conan Ass would sort of stay with it? And that was obviously the challenge. That was the mission. I mean, it was put to me very clearly, which is that the New Yorker, which was a jewel in the crown at Conan Ass, having been purchased by Newhouse, you know, several years before, was ailing. I mean, it was really ailing. And the readership had aged so profoundly and, and, you know, the advertisers were falling away. It was losing a huge amount of money. And, you know, could I actually do what I had done at Vanity Fair, but in a very different way? So it was a completely different challenge. 
probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, which was to wake up Sleeping Beauty while keeping its purity, you know. And I succeeded because the whole question was where to find this new talent that was as good as the old. And because I do know how to find talent, I did find the talent. I let go 70 people at The New Yorker and I hired another 50 and they're all still there. And that's what we had to do. It seems that whenever you've created something that became very successful, that you always had some pushback from people. Often it could be pretty intense pushback. I saw like, for example, when you were at Newsweek, there was a WWD report that was saying that you were, quote, impulsive or drove people too hard mm-hmm. or things that's like all this. true. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I am very driven and I'm not easy to work for. I'm very, very demanding. But I also have people that come back and come back. And many of them I've worked with several times, you know, and I still bring them into what I'm doing. So I have a, a, a very committed cadre of people that I've always worked with. And frankly, the people who, you know, don't make the cut are the ones that, that I just didn't think had what it took. You know, it's not easy, but I do have a passionately loyal cadre of people who've been with me for years. After The New Yorker, when you ended up partnering with Harvey Weinstein, who's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great career move. Yeah. Well, something I think that was interesting with that is I, I heard you say that you knew from day one that he was a terrible business partner. Terrible, yeah. It was a huge mistake. Could you explain that? Well, I mean, yes, in the sense that, you know, I left The New Yorker, which was a hugely wonderful job, let's face it. Because Harvey had promised me the things that I wanted to then do at The New Yorker, which Condé Nast didn't want to do. I left The New Yorker because I kept on saying I felt The New Yorker needed to expand more than being just a magazine. I wanted to see it as a literary festival, a book publishing company, a radio show. Ironically, that is, of course, what they're doing now, all this time later. This was in 1998 that I was saying these things. And Cy Newhouse, the chairman, just didn't get it. He said, no, just go back and edit the magazine. You know, you're just bored. You should just do the magazine. And I wasn't just bored. I wasn't bored at all. I believe that the magazine needed to be more than just a magazine. And, of course, I was completely right about that. But, as you say, I was ahead of the time. So along comes Harvey Weinstein and says, I want to do a magazine that is also book publishing company that is also all of the things, in fact, that I had wanted to do. But it has to be a new magazine because it has to be, you know, started from scratch. I think that was probably the first mistake. We should have probably bought something and, you know, expanded it would have been much easier than a launch because by that time, the sort of desire for me to fail was huge because, you know, I'd I'd upset everybody at Condé Nast by leaving. And, you know, nobody wants to see somebody have four successes, right, in a row. And frankly, I had made a big mistake, which was to partner with Harvey Weinstein because he was so disruptive to be in business with. You know, you cannot do your best work if you have some crazy, profane, impulsive, out of control person on the other end of the telephone five, every five minutes of the day, which is what he was like. And I'd never experienced that. However difficult life had been at Condé Nast for various reasons, you know, basically, Sai Newhouse was a great boss. I mean, he was always very civil. I mean, you know, nobody would be behaving as Harvey behaved. He never sexually harassed me, but he was just so uh, volcanic all the time. And like so, a bully? Like a bully all the time, always calling me and demanding that I publish horrible stuff I didn't want to publish because some journalist had to be appeased who was on his tail. So he would be constantly running around town assigning stories I didn't want, then telling me I had to publish them. But then it would take my budget. And then when I protested, he would say, you pay for it out of your own budget. And it was for mine to clean up. You know, it was like the worst situation, plus making an enemy of the person whose piece I then killed because I wasn't going to publish garbage. That was one of the things that was so difficult. And second, he just didn't know how to be a publisher. You know, we partnered with um, Hearst, but 
joint ventures are always very difficult the best of times. You can imagine what being a joint partner with Harvey Weinstein is like. <laughs> I mean, there's no such thing as being a partner of Harvey Weinstein. He's simply the one who's bullying everybody. And it just was a failure as a structure for me. Magazine, actually, was one of the best magazines that I've done at the beginning, particularly before he ruined it by all of his demands. The first few issues were so good, I have to say, full of great stuff. The staff was an amazing staff who went on to run everything in the media. And, you know, we just needed to have time. Of course, we then had 9-11 to deal with too. So in fairness to Harvey, we did have 9-11. And that's what killed the whole advertising climate, which meant that a small independent magazine like Talk wasn't going to survive in that situation. So it was a kind of perfect storm. Uh, one that I, you know, I, I, I still actually, that's the one I feel got away, you know, because Talk was a very good magazine. And the more I look at it now, which I had to do while I was, you know, thinking about my book and all the rest of it, I thought, my God, this is such a good magazine. It's as fresh as if it was published yesterday. And, you know, I had Jake Tapper and Tucker Carlson as my political writers. I mean, again, two people who ended up with huge careers uh, writing for Talk. It was amazing. You helped build the Daily Beast after that. What did these experiences teach you about what it takes to build something and have it be successful? Did you bring some lessons? Yes, from I mean, talk well, the Daily major Beast? lesson I brought to the Daily Beast, which was a completely happy experience. I mean, I had a wonderful time there. Was just to do things just without any hype. You know, one of the issues that I had uh, a talk to deal with was because I'd had the three successes and because there was so much publicity. You know, it was a much quote awaited launch, and as we know much-awaited launches almost never work. I mean, you see it again and again in television with like Katie Couric or Megyn Kelly. They switch from their big platforms to another network. It's going to be great. It's going to be this huge show. And then boom, you know, it bombs. Same thing with us. All of that hype was very dangerous. So at, at the Daily Beast, I said, you know, we're going to create the site. We want to get it up before the 2008 election. That was critical in terms of traffic, I felt. And I said, as soon as it's ready, we're just going to start posting. And that's what we did, like October the 8th or something. We just decided, okay, go. It's live. And we would start to post. It was a great idea because basically people kind of discovered it. And the way we got it to build was by just breaking news all the time. It was like, wait a minute, what's this thing, The Daily Beast? And then there's another great piece. What's this on The Daily Beast? And then, hey, there's another piece on The Daily Beast. The rule of three in journalism always is, by the third piece, people are paying attention and suddenly it's like, okay, now I need to bookmark that site because it's clearly something I need. And it took off very quickly and became, you know, a roaring success actually as a, you know, everybody wanted to write for it. I mean, we broke so much news. It's still a major newsmaker. It's always been hard to find its economic model. I mean, I left four years ago now and I don't think it's making money still. It's very, very difficult as we know to make money with a news site. But we built a brand. And again, I felt very proud of having done that. I do want to talk about, too, your Women in the World Summit. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, in 2010, I started something when, while I was still actually at the Daily Beast, where I was the founding editor. I wanted to create a platform that would bring to American attention, if you like, the voices of amazing global women who could not really get any attention in this country because I felt that there was this rumblings of this really exciting kind of woman's movement globally that really wasn't getting any attention and that American feminism really was sort of dormant and dead at that time. It's not so much that I was some kind of passionate feminist. It's just that I'm a great storyteller and I kept meeting women with incredible stories and wondering why they're not 
getting attention. Very hard to get attention for those kind of stories, stories about women in Africa, India, the Middle East. You know, there's not a lot of scope for the American media attention. And yet once people hear them, they're blown away by their stories and they become very interested in the places they come from. So it began with that philosophy. And right from the beginning, just sort of took off instantly, actually. I mean, we had, you know, incredible women from Congo, an amazing woman who, who spearheaded the uprising in Liberia that helped to topple a dictator, Charles Taylor. I put those women on the stage, but I also always then combined them with women like Hillary Clinton, like Angelina Jolie, like Christine Lagarde at the beginning, who would bring their spotlight to them. And it just really worked. And we've now, since then, I, I, I left the Daily Beast. I brought uh, the women the world out of it. And launched it then as a separate company with Tina Brown Live Media. And since then, 2014 to now, we've really been an independent, very growing global platform, which reproduces these live journalistic stories all over the world. This year's summit, you know, is proving incredibly exciting and topical. And of course, next year's summit, which is the 10th anniversary, is going to really be a massive celebration. Yeah. How will you be addressing the Me Too movement at, at this year's event? Well, our whole mission has always been global. So for us, it's about who are the forgotten women of Me Too and can we take Me Too global? So for instance, opening night, we had a very, very powerful discussion about why Italy, of all places, is such a terrible place for women's rights. So we had on the stage Aja Argento, who is the actress who, one of the actresses who accused Harvey Weinstein of his appalling treatment. One of the first ones. One yeah. of the very first, with Amra Guterres, of course, who is the young Italian woman model who was on the FBI sting and who also accused Berlusconi uh, of having these terrible bunga bunga parties, as they were called. <laughs> And we put her on the, them on the stage with Laura Baldroni, who is one of the leading feminist politicians who has really spoken out about women's rights in a very big way and had Ronan Farrow moderate it. So this was really a kind of classic women in the world discussion. It's made a lot of news. And telling the stories around these. And telling the stories yeah. and telling how, you know, a woman who's a Me Too hero in the US goes back to Italy, finds herself slut shamed, finds herself abused as some kind of a whore. Unthinkable, really, here but not unthinkable in Italy, where they've really been treated like you're, you're just prostitutes, which has really been very hurtful to these women. And what advice would you give to someone who wants to have a career like yours? You need passion, absolute passion, to just, you know, however unlikely it seems, just kind of pursue the heck out of it. Really nurture talent. I mean, talent's the key to it all. You have to handle people properly in talent. You know, you need to find them, but then you've got to keep them with you. And the way you keep them with you is by being genuinely engaged with people. I'm always shocked, frankly, at how editors really don't pay much attention to the writers at all. Writers will write for somebody for very little money, as they did for me at The Beast, if they get a response. If they get a note back saying, fantastic piece, can you just make the top this and I suggest you change the middle to this? Boom. They love it. They want response and they want to feel that they've found a home. Most of the time today, people just write pieces and there's no real response. It just kind of posts. Nobody really says anything. They don't even know whether it was liked or not liked. But there's no real sense that anybody cares, frankly, that you're there, out there. So I think that is the major mistake that people make. Keeping your talent happy, keeping your talent there, is really the major function of an editor. And it's the major thing you have to learn how to do. What do you think the biggest challenge has been in your career? I think that The New Yorker was a very hard challenge, actually, because there was so much at stake. You know, I'd had a huge success at Vanity Fair, which is always means you're much more vulnerable. And this magazine, The New Yorker, was such a beloved jewel. And at the same time, there were many people rooting for me to fail because, you know, when you've had one success, 
people don't necessarily root for you to have a second. And there were many people I had to let go at The New Yorker who were not happy about that and who wanted the magazine to stay as it was. So that was a hugely challenging time for me. And, you know, it took several years, but I was so proud at the end because we did it. You know, we did turn it around. It took some time to, to make money. In fact, only recently has it begun to make money in the last five years, really. But that's the kind of time it took. And at the same time, we saved and reinvented a great American institution, literary institution, which I think the world has never needed more than now. So I'm very, very proud of what we pulled off there. Is people out there wanting you to fail? Does that just come with the territory when you're a leader of something? You create a lot of jealousy when you succeed. And I mean, frankly, I'd had three big successes as an editor. And so therefore, there was a lot of competitiveness amongst editors who felt they hadn't had the same kind of attention or, or awards. And also being a woman, I think, also makes people much more sharp elbowed about you. You know, I mean, you, you have to also beat back the belittling that comes in the sexist terrain, which I experienced so often and, you know, and still do in many ways. What would an uh, example be of that? Just the kind of non-acknowledging of the success that you've wrought or denigrating it as some kind of a publicity stunt or, you know, without actually saying, if I was a, had been a male editor, really looking at the literary achievements, really looking at the writers that I brought in and the photographers, which we, you know, haven't mentioned, but, you know, all the photography that I brought and the whole visual sides of the magazines I've done. I've invented so many careers, quite honestly. And that achievement, I don't think at the time, got the same kind of just acknowledgement than if I'd been a, a male editor. It was always tended to be denigrated as a publicity stunt or as a kind of a, quote, buzz generating or as a kind of a, because I had a budget to work with or whatever. It was very rarely said to be simply that, you know, it was an achievement and uh, whichever way you look at it. And how should you view failure, especially after you've had major success? I think failure is a really great learning tool. I learned so much from my experience at Talk. You know, it's painful, but it also liberates you too. I mean, after Talk failed, I went back to my roots. I wrote my book about Princess Diana. It was a number one bestseller. That was so kind of restoring for me. I just sort of, I wasn't managing people. I wasn't coping with the screaming Harvey Weinstein. I was just sitting at my desk writing my book. It was bliss. You know, it, it can be very, very restoring to find yourself. The worst thing happened did happen. You know, it didn't work. All of that agony about, well, what if it fails? What, you know what? It fails. So what? America is full, which is what I love about America, is full of people who've succeeded and failed, succeeded and failed. And I think it's uh, important to remember that, uh, you know, your strength is your strength. It's not dependent on the opinion of other people. Well, thank you so much, Tina. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Dan Richards. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. This week, we're really sad to say goodbye to Dan Richards. He's an excellent producer, and we wish him the best in what comes next. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success. Subscribe so you don't miss it. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, 
They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.